Welcome to Culture Cryptids, the horror podcast where we ask the question, should I have sex with that monster? Hello, hello, and welcome back to Culture Cryptids. Did you just say welcome back to Culture Cryptids after our intro just said the same thing? It doesn't say that in the intro. It doesn't say welcome back to. No. It says welcome to. I have forgotten what these intros are. Oh, say. no. Well, <laughs> it's probably time to revisit those that, a little bit. That bodes well for us, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a while. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm JD, and some folks would consider my Spotify wrapped a horror movie in its own right. There is all kinds of hyperpop and slut pop and 100 gex, and old people would consider it a oh, horror old, movie. Old people? Yeah. I'm not an old. Okay. If that's what you're telling yourself this week. This week? Yeah. I mean, some some weeks you're just like, yes, yes, I'm all Silver Fox. And then you're just like, no, I'm not an old. (laughs) I I vacillate between (laughs) Captain Hook and Peter Pan just constantly. Oh, God. That is so many men. It's just so many men in general. Especially gay men. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that for sure. For sure. Gay men. Yeah. Well, this is JD and I'm Corey, who I am currently taking applications for Stray Souls. If you have any available, um, we can talk about deal making in the process. I don't I don't know what you're hoping to get out of it, but we, we can talk. We can chat. <laughs> it's a buyer's market. It's a buyer's market right now. Right, right. That's yeah. the thing people say. All right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Money things no make sense to me. As, as we were just discussing, we were before just discussing your impulse purchases at the end, at the end of this year, and it's oh. So we are in that lovely lull between the January doldrums. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we're we're in that period. Um, everybody at the at the time that this comes out, people are either still going to be in a high mode of sticking to the resolutions, or they've already given up on them at this point. Yeah, it's usually the latter for a lot of people. <laughs> Let's be honest. Optimism. I love it's, it. No, no one is saying 2024 is their year. No. Nobody I, is saying I, that. We all know what's up. I mean, up. we we are saying this <laughs> on the other side, like it is not 2024 yet. And so this is a like warning to no one, but I don't need anyone to claim this year. And and I don't think anyone has. And I think that that might, that might end up a good thing for us. It's good. Yeah. Just play it by ear. Just 2024 is not going to be your year. It's going to be no one's year. Nobody's year. Nobody's year. We're going to survive it. Just put your head down. That's that's what we're hoping. (laughs) Um, Have you done anything fun during this holiday break? I ate a lot and I um, drank a lot because that's what you do during to survive the holidays. Yeah. I was in survival mode. families involved. Especially family holidays. (laughs) I did both of those things. I have been playing a lot of games on my fancy new Steam Deck because I uh, loved the thing. It was a present. It was a gift because it's um, I don't buy myself nice things because I can't be trusted with them. But I have this and I love it. So, yeah, playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3. Let's uh, be honest with what we all are. It's a pretty horny game, right? It, it is really horny. But it's also it's D&D. So, I mean, D&D is really horny in a lot of weird ways it can be it can be yeah i've been playing a lot of that and actually just started resident evil 4 the remake i'd played the original a million years ago speaking of horny oh yeah everybody's into leon leon kennedy yowza (laughs) (laughs) it's that hair it's that fluffy blonde hair yeah that's what it is i mean most of the time i'm just catching up on chores like somebody's got to clean my house 
Um, <laughs> not going to do itself. Uh, I've been, I mean, I did the typical holiday stuff, mm-hmm. but I've been trying to catch up on media and I went and saw Poor Things. Yes, I really want to see that one. The new Yorgos Lanthimos. That's correct. That's how you say it, Is right? It? I, oh. Why are you asking me? <laughs> oh, because you're notoriously great at pronouncing <laughs> yes. things. Pronunciation is my jam. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's great. It's not my... I think the favorite is still mm. my top as far as what he's made, but it's fantastic. And I honestly think that Emma Stone could possibly get another nomination of some sort for it oh, she's great she's fan- everybody's great in it but mm-hmm. she really just carries the entire film but just like all of his other movies it's very visually like rich to look at the costuming mm-hmm. in it is fantastic but i mean it's to a certain degree it's frankenstein so yeah that, yeah. from the trailer i was just like oh this looks great and fantastic the cast looks good it's on my list of movies to watch but it, i have not been back to the theater since godzilla minus zero uh, minus one sorry which is amazing just i still need to see that i also saw boy and the heron i haven't seen that one yet either it was good i need to catch up on miyazaki um yeah so i'll have some movies to watch that's but you know what is january for to stay at home when it's dark and cold yeah it's to give into your seasonal affective disorder and just hole up and watch movies and stay in a blanket and eat fun foods yeah that sounds right (laughs) that's what i have ahead of me this month so what did we want to talk about? Hmm. Well, we haven't done an episode in a while. And I thought it might be fun for us to jump into something that we both really like and enjoy um, that involves a base amount of research for my um, dark corner of the internet uh, behavior, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, I thought it'd be really fun to talk about some urban legends specifically ones around music that's right yeah because i think it really sort of blends um both of our loves of things together because one of us knows way more about music than the other of us and i feel like everyone knows which one of us that is (laughs) (laughs) when we were talking about doing this i had to consistently remind myself that it's urban legends about music because i kept Mm -hmm. in my head saying musical urban legends and i'm like no it's not urban legends about things like sweet charity or cats (laughs) or anything like that i mean it could be but no actual urban legends around like recorded music yes Yeah. yeah and specifically kind of legends that have persisted through a long time for some of these yeah for some of these are a little newer too so we thought it'd be fun to talk about them because uh, I'm honestly surprised that some people are aware of some of these and some people don't know about some of them. So it could be a good time for us to kind of jump in and have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you may know something on a base level about some of these, but not more in-depth information. And if you know it all, if you know everything, then, you know, stick with us and mm-hmm. make sure keep us keep us on the up and up. If we say something <laughs> that's not true, then make sure to message us about that. We love being corrected. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, don't talk about your kinks on we, the podcast. We just love being communicating. <laughs> we just like people communicating with us, not just talking into the void. All right. Anyway, that's enough for me. Do you want to start us out? I will. I will. <laughs> so did you know that? I love that opening. <laughs> yeah. We're going to play the did you know game. 
Did you know that in the 70s, rock music was used to spread subliminal messages to children and teens, encouraging them to worship Satan? Well, yeah. Yeah, everybody yeah, knows everybody that knows one. That. That's, that's <laughs> the easy one, yeah. So, of course, like, this is something that most people are aware of, that there was a huge, like, movement in the 70s and 80s that is largely tied to the satanic panic which is one of my favorite things and in a very weird way i should say one of my favorite things to discuss and to kind of do some research in so according to several people subliminal messages were put into a lot of songs and through a technique that was called backmasking and backmasking and i'm going to read the definition that i pulled straight off wikipedia because it's the most succinct one you can find is like backmasking is a recording technique in which a message is recorded backwards onto a track that is meant to be played forward. So, and to be considered backmasking, it is a deliberate process. Someone has put a secret message there that you cannot hear, but filters into your mind no matter what. So the instances where somebody plays something backwards and you just kind of, it, by a series of chants, make something like a word that's not intentional, not considered backmasking? So that's a great question. Okay. Because now it is not considered backmasking. But when this was a big thing, it was considered backmasking. Because that's the thing is like, is backmasking real? Yeah. That's the well, first question we have to ask ourselves. Is it real? Well, what's funny is that younger me whenever you would have brought this up would have mm -hmm. initially thought about like you know taking your record and spinning it backwards and hearing like hell satan and stuff like mm -hmm. that but like me now thinks about specifically work it by missy elliott <laughs> that is actually a great example <laughs> that is one of my examples in this yeah so yeah you're um, yeah exactly that that's what it is so yes backmasking is real now was it used to spread satanic messages well they sure did think so in the late 70s because in the late 70s you saw this rise of like the christian right the christian fundamentalist groups mm -hmm. started making claims that like rock music and specifically rock music was a tool of the devil and we've seen this throughout time anytime there's a new musical genre it's the tool of the devil so to prove to prove this they started spreading the story that there were actually messages in these popular songs that were turning kids and teens against God. And so they were turning them against God and they were going to worship Satan. If you had a rock and roll record in your house, your child was worshiping Satan. Well, a lot of it probably had to do also with the imagery that some of these bands used. Some to, of it, right? yes. I mean, that's part of it. But they couldn't get enough traction in the one way, so they started like it's actually influencing people. Because like by the 1980s, of course, the satanic panic had hit the full effect. And that was basically that like satanic media was coming after your children to... to Boil it down to its basic tones. That is the kind of largest part of the satanic panic. But there's so many other things. But in this case, the first time I think the Christian right really got a hold of the idea of backmasking was in 1982. The Trinity Broadcasting Network, shockingly. TBN. TBN, yes. Had uh, televangelist Paul Crouch Jr., whose uh, parents had started Trinity, by the way. That's why he got in there. Nepo little nepotism baby. He aired nepotism in the church? Yeah, no. never. Yeah. <laughs> he aired a segment about backmasking. And his main example, of course, was um, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. And in Stairway to Heaven, he said that you could hear satanic messages in the songs when you played it backwards. Now, what he said you could hear were things like, 
Here's to my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He will give those with him 666. There was a little tool shed where he makes us suffer, sad Satan. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's just, I want to see this little Satan tool shed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you listen to the song backwards, there are some interesting places where your brain makes you think you're hearing words. And one of the words you may think you're hearing is Satan. Well, yeah, your brain's going to try to find a pattern exactly. wherever it can. Exactly. Your brain's going to try to make patterns out of these things. So unfortunately, this actually led to a legal hearing about labeling of music with subliminal messages. As, as well as expert testimony from there was a self-proclaimed neurological researcher, and I'm putting this in quotes, named um, William Yarrow. Yarrow. Yarrow had done so much research, he said, because he was a professional, even though we have no, he has no qualifications. There's no one's going to find it. He said that hearing this kind of music, hearing backmasking three times was all it would take to, quote, manipulate our behavior without our knowledge or consent and turn us into disciples of the antichrist three three is the magic number (laughs) touche yeah i mean i didn't mean it like that but now i do but we've we've talked about the the importance of the number three before yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so three is the magic number three is when you will be into fall under satan's spell if you listen to the song three times so of course this led to like a massive panic across all of like these parents were like pulling their children's records out and like destroying them. It led to a lot of this big scares that you had there to supposedly make you label music. So there were a bunch of other songs that they thought had some lyrics in them. And one of my favorites is a, a queen, the Queens, another one bites the dust. Mm-hmm. If you play it backwards, it's apparently saying it's fun to smoke marijuana over and over and over again, which is, of course, the chorus is another one bites the dust. So you're reversing it and your brain is trying to make sense of those sounds. I mean, and it's not a lie. (laughs) It's a lot of fun to smoke marijuana. They say that it's repeating it with the chorus. Uh, Styx's Snowblind has a line where supposedly Satan moves through our voices is the quote that you can hear in the songs. And of course, the Eagles Hotel California has a that you could supposedly hear something saying satan he hears this he had me believe so you think this is really silly like this sounds really really silly it sounds like something like why would anybody believe this why is this real but we already had legal proceedings to be like wait we need to label these music Mm -hmm. but at the time like it, it fell through and actually um arkansas put it through both the house and the uh senate and supposedly i think it was bill clinton that vetoed it so Thanks, Clinton, for something. <laughs> so was this was this kind of isolated to the United States? Um, at the time, it seems like it. I'm not, I ha- couldn't find any other cases in Europe or anything like that where this was a legal issue the same mm-hmm. way it was. But these things really actually came to a head. And I didn't know this before I started looking into this. But did you know that Judas Priest was put on trial for the for the murder suicide of two young men yes yeah i Mm -hmm. didn't know that so in 1990 two young men who i think one was like 18 one was 20 committed um formed a suicide pack after of course after listening to their like favorite albums which was like um judas priest album is 1978's stained stained class and they supposedly spent the day drinking smoking and decided they were going to kill themselves Uh, Like you do. Like you do, yes. Um, And in that, 
one of them passed away. Both of them did eventually pass away, which is unfortunate. As you know, this is, but their parents sued Judas Priest for saying that Judas Priest made them do it because there were messages in the album that supposedly said, do it and let's be dead. So this went to trial in, in 1990. But the judge listened to all of these the records and everything and was like, wow, subliminal messaging is kind of scary. This I don't think this is it. Like he was basically his the, the court decided that like, no, there was not an actual incident of backmasking in the Jews Priest album. But subliminal messaging could be a thing. And they left open legal precedent for like an open prosecution in the future. Should anyone be proven to actually be engaging in this? Uh, which, of course, people did <laughs> and people still kept doing it because there are a ton of real examples of it. You you mentioned Missy Elliott's like uh, bring it back and reverse it, which actually, if you play the record backwards, it says, says put it. my thing down, flip it and reverse. Yeah, it. Yeah. And that you do it and it says the same thing. So um it's delightful. Well, so backmasking actually originated with a record in 1959. There was a group called The Eligibles. They released an, a record like a called Car Trouble, like a single called Car Trouble. And if you reverse it, you can hear them say something basically from, it seems like we were from the perspective of the father. And it's basically like, bring my daughter back by 1030, ya bum, or something like that is what's <laughs> actually in it. So that's one of the real examples of backmasking. And before the 80s, the only people that knew anything about this were probably big Beatles fans because Lennon used it in their album Revolver, the song Rain. At the end of it, reversed, you can hear them say, sunshine, rain, when the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. So it's a pretty innocuous message that the ones you have example in there. Of course, one of my favorite is the um, Pink Floyd Empty Spaces, mm -hmm. where halfway through you can hear the voice come in and be like, congratulations, you have just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to Old Pink, care of the funny farm. And he starts to give the address, and then you can hear someone shout, Roger, Carolyn's on the phone. And he's like, oh, okay, and then it goes away. So you're just like, clearly, <laughs> whatever he was going to say gets interrupted by a call from his wife, because Carolyn was his wife. And then, like... Beck's loser repeats the chorus. Weird Al has a song. I can't remember which song it is. We're basically halfway through. It says something like, boy, you have a lot of time on your hands is like making fun of you for doing this. So bands have been known to do it now. And especially a lot of, a lot of black metal will do it to be edgy. Like Cradle of Filth has a bunch of stuff that they put in the bed <laughs> of their albums now that are actual Hail Satan messages because that's their gimmick. That's, that's their, their thing. Yeah. That's their yeah. thing. So you see a lot of it like that in there, but fortunately nobody had to label subliminal messages on their albums. Although one band did it to make fun of it. And I can't remember who, which, which one it was, but that was kind of the origin of like, yes, satanic messages are in your children's music. When it turns out it's really just like bring my daughter home in time from her date or um, congratulations, you've discovered the secret message. I, I think in regards to like popular media besides the Missy Elliott song, I immediately thought about um, the Simpsons episode. Yes. The <laughs> army, about joining the army. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always think of Josie and the Pussycats, which is a highly underrated film. Movie before it's time. Movie before, Movie it's, time. before it's time. Because the main plot of Josie and the Pussycats is evil uh, music exec played by Parker, Parker Posey. Uh, is putting messages into the music to market different, like, items to people and like honestly if subliminal messaging worked you know what they would do it mm -hmm. but it doesn't work 
Like it clearly doesn't work. It's not three times and you want a, like a cheeseburger. Like That's not how it works. Now I want to watch Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. Well, see, now I've subliminally messaged you into oh, doing yeah. that. So, I mean, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, now I really want to watch that movie. That's going to have to happen after we're done, I think. It's on, I think it's on Criterion right now. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It should be a, it should be a Criterion release. Anywho. So the first urban legend that I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. kind of ties into that a little bit because yeah. it has to deal with something that is hidden, quote unquote, hidden in a song. And it's 1975's Love Roller Coaster. Are you uh, familiar with the song? I am very familiar with the song. Okay. 1975 recorded by the Ohio, Ohio Players. Most people in our age range probably are more familiar with the Red Hot Chili Peppers cover yes. that they did for... Beavis and Butthead to America. It was Beavis and Butthead to America, yes. That, <laughs> honestly, that was my first introduction to the song, but mm-hmm. I have definitely listened to the original. Well, I picked this one for a few different reasons. One of them is that in actually in the movie Urban Legend, the you know fabulous film from 1998, they talk. that's one of the ones they talk about in, mm-hmm. in the movie is this song. And also my favorite Final Destination movie, Final Destination 3, uses it. It's the song that cues up every time there's going to be a death. 3 is the one with the roller coaster? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. I had to remember. I had to go through my <laughs> like Final you, Destination. You worked that out. <laughs> yeah, I worked it through it because there's, you know, I love the Final Destination movies and this is my... Um... The third one especially, I mean, tangent, but the... <laughs> The transition from this tanning bed scene okay, yes. to the coffins. Yes. Chef kiss. Yeah, there's so like, many fun things in that one. Getting back to what I was talking about, though. <laughs> so in in the song, the urban legend is is that, if, depending on the version of the song you're listening to, if you're listening to the single version, it's about at a minute 24. Not at about a minute. It's at a minute 24. <laughs> and in the album version, it's at 2 minutes 32 seconds. You hear a scream in the background. But the, right. here's the thing is that if you didn't know it was there, you probably might not hear it because it's so low in the mix that you your mind could even just go right past it. So the the urban legend, the most common one, is that it's the voice of an individual being murdered live while the tape was rolling. I have heard this. At least the legend. Of course, I saw Urban Legend. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a few different variations on it, but let's go back to like how it began. Mm-hmm. So, song comes out in 1975. So, late 1975, possibly early 1976, there's just an incidental comment made by a unidentified disc jockey in Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. mentioning this. That is then picked up by Casey Kasem. Okay. And in 1976, on the nationally syndicated American Top 40, which we, you are familiar with, I am familiar, I'm familiar with. with it. It was it was around for a long time. Yeah, and now it's is it Rick D's and the Weekly I, Top 40 is kind of what that's. I think so. Kind of. I've, yeah. I mean, after Casey Kasem wasn't doing it anymore, I don't think I think I was too old to listen to it. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about the request and dedication. That's the, right. But Casey Kasem repeated it, and so from that point, it just kind of exploded. And much like urban legends do, mm-hmm. it mutated. There were kind of little, you know, sub variations of it from here to here. So some of those that there that are more common ones is on the cover of that Ohio Players album. It's called Honey. There is a nude woman and she's holding a jar of honey with a spoon with honey uh, dripping down on it. Okay. So the most common version of it is that the scream was from her. 
because she was being stabbed by a band member, their manager, or an engineer during the recording session. Oh, like so you do. they were murdering her. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. okay. I didn't know that part of the story. <laughs> they were trying to make good use of their time. They're recording, yeah. they're murdering, you know, yeah. no fuss, no muss. Okay. Other variations of it included like an elaborate backstory um, involving the artwork on the album cover as a motive for the stabbing because she is very nude and sexy, <laughs> nude and or sexy on the cover of it. Not both, just one of the just two. one or the other. Um, <laughs> and also tied to that one is that she wasn't murdered, but the scream is her being recorded from a hot, very hot, like molten batch of honey dripping onto her while they were shooting the image for the cover of sure okay <laughs> okay hot honey got it like less common variations identified the victim as a band member's girlfriend or even the cleaning woman in the studio <laughs> okay yeah yeah uh good stuff what's really like and this kind of goes goes back to like the, the ones you were talking about those that was incredible marketing for those bands oh yeah like all of those bands i'm sure saw an uptick in album sales because of being tied to possibly like you know, clandestinely recruiting for Satan. Mm-hmm. Same thing with this one, the drummer for the band and also one of the songwriters, Jimmy Diamond Wilson, he quoted was, the DJ made this crack and it swept the country. People were asking us, did you kill this girl in the studio? <laughs> William said nothing. The mystique that the legend circulated was actually pretty good for business. The band took a vow of silence because you sell more records that way. And they did. Yeah. yeah. Of course you sell more records that it, way. I mean, it still would have been a hit even not counting that, but I don't think it would have had the staying power that it has now. So the actual scream that is on, Mm -hmm. on the recording is not a woman's scream. First of all, it is, it is a man's scream and it is Bill, uh, Billy Beck, I think is his name. Uh, I, I will double check that. And if I'm wrong, I will put something in here. Sure. Here. Yeah. to, To correct myself. It was him trying to just kind of, um, modulate a little bit kind of in the way that like Minnie Ripperton would or Mariah Carey how she tries to warm up her voice a little bit before she you know does like the it's time Um, yeah (laughs) and I've actually got queued up here this is the scream with everything taken out of it like everything else is filtered out and it, it is just that part of it and it's so funny to like listen to it like with the urban legend so here we go That right there. Right. Yeah, Billy Beck. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, to me, it was always like someone going down the roller coaster. Like, that's the way you would scream. That's what I thought was initially, too. But it was just one of the the vocalists having having fun. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does does a great job making it sound like someone going down a roller coaster screaming. Yeah. (laughs) And this, something like this. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, in the modern day and age wouldn't exist. Like people would have like put, no. put the rumor to yeah. rest. But I think it's great that even this being from 1975 and us having the tools that we have now and it being obviously proved as being false, like nobody was killed, that it's still much like the back masking still has a lot of staying power. People still mm-hmm. put like stock in it and believe it to a certain degree. Interesting. Because like I had, I think one of the versions that I had heard was that they had like, it was a, like a woman across the street or something. I think by the time it had filtered down to me. Yeah, there's another one where it was just 
and this is kind of one of the more boring ones. Mm-hmm. It was it was actually the scream of somebody being killed. But it was like from a re- recorded nine one one call. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I think I've heard that one too. It's interesting how many different versions like go through from turning it into satanic ritual with hot honey to <laughs> to like a nine one one nine one one call. Yeah, it, the nine one one call is the one I think that makes the least sense to me. <laughs> Even less sense than killing somebody alive in the studio. Because why would you want to have something like that on your recording? Like, I can understand, like, you just messed up and killed someone. It's like, oh, just throw a bunch of music on top of it. Yeah. Because record, I will say time in a recording studio is very expensive. Oh, and it was sure. very expensive in 1975. <laughs> Understandable. But yeah, that, 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 that was. It's one of the great, I think it's one <laughs> of the great urban legends. And I didn't know it was actually the singer who had done the scream. Yeah. It, it does seem like it would be something that they just kind of put in that was yeah. like pre-recorded. And it, yeah, it, my thing was that it was somebody going down a roller coaster too, mm-hmm. but no. And I don't think that in the, in the Red Hot Chili Peppers version, there isn't anything like that. Would you think that a band like that would try to capitalize? Yeah, you, you would. Cause they, they are the Chili Peppers, but I don't know. Maybe they just didn't. It seems like a weird thing. Weird miss for them. <laughs> a weird miss. A weird miss. <laughs> Those guys are weird. Those okay? guys are weird. Those guys are weird. That band is. I think it, <laughs> at one point it was cool to listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and now you're just like an old dad if you do. <laughs> hey, I'm so old. I've seen them live. So have you really? Yeah. Like when? Oh like god! What era it was like a Lollapalooza? It, no, it was it was a long time ago. I was not old enough to be there. I was not old enough to uh, see Flea naked, but I did. <laughs> Uh, he wasn't fully naked, I should point out. He, yeah, they, those guys like to be in their underwear. Oh, yeah. No, he was yeah. in a sock, but he wasn't oh. fully naked. I, I didn't see him naked, and but yeah. <laughs> Enough about the chili peppers, Enough though. About that. Back to the Ohio players. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's one that still has a bunch of staying power. When I went to research it, it w- even just the variations that aren't consistent across all of the different sources, like people who write about like every time I read a different article about it, there was a new variation that I read about. Mm-hmm. Like the... The hot honey, um, hot honey woman, what we'll say is that not hot honey chicken, Mm -hmm. but hot honey woman one was like one of the ones that I encountered kind of, I was like three or four sources and articles in before I even found that one. And that's the one that's most appealing to me. So I think it's the most bizarre. Yeah. I I like, I like food based trauma and food based (laughs) injuries as well. (laughs) Take control back from me. I'm done. No, you're done. (laughs) Hot honey woman. Hot honey woman. I don't know what. <laughs> it's fine. We're taking a break. This is our break moment. <laughs> oh man. That I actually you bring up a good, good point. This probably is a good time to take a break. Should we take a break? Yeah. Let's take a break. So for our next urban legend, this is actually one of the ones that it's probably oldest for me that I've known about for like a million years. I found out about this one in high school, oddly enough, <laughs> and it has really stuck with me. And I think in part because I am a huge, I was a weirdly huge fan of the band that it involves, which is of course like, you can't talk about urban legends in music without at least talking a little bit about the Beatles because the Beatles have a lot of urban legends surrounding their music. And, and their lives, and including some, like, really, really bizarre ones. Like how the Beatles supposedly got high before meeting the Queen of England, which is not true. 
And a, my person, one of my personal favorites. I wouldn't blame them for that. Right, though. right. But apparently, it's like a it was a long-standing like urban legend that they just got super stoned. Um, and every by all reports, they did not. And my personal favorite urban legend is that like <sighs> Stephen King was the person who actually killed John Lennon. Somehow, this is this is some weird urban legend thing. Yeah, Steve, that Stephen King, which I found at my research, and I was like, I have never heard that before. That's wild, but. There's one that's even, like, bigger than all of that. And I think a lot of people know about it. And I think you, we've discussed that you know about this, too. But according to legend, Paul McCartney is dead. So that I do know. I do mm-hmm. know that Paul McCartney is dead. And we can say for certain Paul McCartney is dead. <laughs> right? And it's a double, correct? No, we're not certain on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, no, I know that part, but I do not know how it ties into the Beatles' music. Did um, I just throw you for a loop? You just <laughs> threw me for a loop by telling me Paul McCartney was dead. And I was like, Paul McCartney's not dead. And um, I had to like, just, I had a moment of panic of like, did I miss Paul McCartney dying? Oh my God. No. Paul McCartney is very much alive to this day. Okay. He is 81 years old, but he is still alive. But it's not the real Paul McCartney. Well, that's according to the story. Okay. Yes. So the re- urban- re- re- Regale me with this <laughs> I tale. will. I will. I know way too much about this one. So buckle up kids. Here we go. According to the story, in November 1966, while they were recording their newest album at the time, which was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles had a massive argument in the studio. Like they do. Like like they did at the time, especially. And Paul McCartney stormed off. He got into his car on a, a, a nighttime drive where it was very rainy, and he had a car accident. And in this car accident, he, um, he actually passed away. He died. So the car accident is real. He did actually have a car accident okay, around this okay. time. Yeah, but there are so many witnesses. There are lots of eyewitnesses that watched the car accident. He's fine. Here's the thing. I will mm-hmm. tell you, this is all a bunch of new knowledge for me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to out myself. I don't like the Beatles. Okay. You know, I'm. everyone can be wrong about a couple things. Yeah, no, so, I, I, I understand that I'm wrong about that. Uh, like, you know, they say, like, people are either, like, a Rolling Stones people or Beatles people. Like, You either want to hold her hand or take her to bed? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah I'm neither I, of that's those. Not, that's not my quote. That was a friend of mine for many years ago told me that. And I was like, that's a great analogy. That's pretty great. So yeah. I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to question a lot of things you're asking. Like, I did not know that there actually was a real car accident. He had a car accident at the time. It was a minor car accident. Okay. He was fine. Continue. I will continue. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he had his car accident. He passed away. And because the Beatles were like, had recently blown up, they were really popular. There were all these other things. Instead of announcing that Paul McCartney was dead, they decided to hide it. And they covered it up with a lookalike. And this lookalike has been Paul McCartney, or fake Paul McCartney, from the 60s onward. Okay. Yeah. Which means that, like, Paul McCartney never wrote, like, Hey Jude. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, the, like, you know. And all of Wings is somebody else. Right, yeah. right. So that's what I'm saying. Also, this guy probably should have had the job anyway because he's that good of a songwriter. But that, I digress. So, since then, the Beatles have been putting secret messages in their music, on their cover albums, and in their personal lives that allude to the fact that Paul is really dead. They one theory that they do it is because they weren't happy with the cover up, and they wanted people to know, and they were or they were forced to do a cover up by either their management or the government because the Beatles are so popular, they're British national treasure. Yeah. Okay. So we have a ton 
of evidence for this. If you would like to go down that rabbit hole with me. Is this a list? Yes, this is a list. (laughs) Whew. This is a really, really big list. Oh, you are making my evening. I know. Go ahead. Are you excited? Okay. (laughs) So since you are not very familiar with Beatles music, I will do my best to kind of walk you through this. So it starts with the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band cover album, which if you've never seen this cover album, first of all, it's regarded as one of the most fantastic cover albums ever. It's like a bunch of people dressed up in different things, right? It is. It has the, yes, it is a bunch of people cussed up and other things. And it looks like you have, they have just done a photo collage. Mm-hmm. They have not. They have gotten wax figures and like full cutouts of everyone from like, it just like everybody is on this cover. If you ever look at it, like there's a, the album came with a thing to be like a who's who to mm. tell you who was on it. So it's a really cool conceptual album cover and also they are standing in front of a flowery kind of like um some nice foliage and some the flowers kind of spell out the beetles and there's all this stuff in front of it well according to the lore of this that it's actually in front of a grave and if you look closely enough you can see it's paul mccartney's grave it's paul mccartney's grave because there is a p that's hidden in there and then the foliage spells out paul for you if you look very hard for it you have to look very, very hard. No, pull up, pull up the cover. And so tell me what you're seeing there. Okay. All right. Because a lot of this is visual, I will say. Not Sergeant Pepperonis. No, not Sergeant Pepperonis. <laughs> okay. I'm looking at the cover. Okay. So as you can see, again, the four Beatles are in the front next to four wax figures of themselves from their first appearances in the black suits. You can see... There's like a Maryland, there's like all kinds of historic figures, modern figures that are all in there and they are all either wax figures or full-size cutouts of these people. In front of them, supposedly the, the way that the green plants are laid out in front of the drum is supposed to spell out Paul, supposedly. There is also what looks like a P shape in the uh, foliage that next underneath the beetles. Do you see the little, the yellow flowers? That's supposed to be a P. That's supposed to be, it's a sideways P. It is a sideways P. I am telling you what the, what the legend, how the legend goes. (laughs) And then on the back cover of the album, which is in black and white, you can see the four beetles, except in that one, Paul McCartney is facing away from the camera. So you only see his back. On the back cover. They're still in the same outfits. Which is supposed to allude that he's not allude there. Allude that he is not there. Yeah. In that album, you have a song called A Day in the Life, which has the lyrics, he blew his mind out in a car, which alludes to him dying in, in the, the car, car accident. In the car accident. And supposedly, if you <clears throat> listen to the song backwards, you can hear Lennon saying, Paul is dead. Miss him. Miss him. I have listened to this. If you tell me it's there and put captioned under it, my brain might believe it. Mm-hmm. But no, that's not backmasked. And and the Beatles were a band that did backmasking. This is not backmasked in the song. There is also the fact that who replaced Paul McCartney. Now, there's been several different names thrown around, like William Campbell, who supposedly won a Paul McCartney lookalike contest. They dragged him <laughs> in. Yeah. They also, his name supposedly could be William Shears, which is shortened to Billy Shears. And that is, an in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Line, the, same, the song, they reference a Billy Shears. It's just a random reference because it's Beatles music. In Strawberry Fields Forever, a song that's also on that album, you supposedly can hear Lennon muttering, I buried Paul, 
the end of the track. Like it's in it's in the audio of the track. Lennon is saying something towards the end of it. Lennon swears he's sworn he always swore that like he was just saying cranberry sauce. Why was he saying cranberry sauce? I don't know. But he swears that's what he's saying in the in the end of the track. Like it's like a muttering like as they fade off from the album that song. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, so as this kind of like progressed, people were looking back through the album and like trying to find more things to look in their back catalog. Their famous song, The Glass Onion, from 1969. I don't know if you've ever listened to the song. No, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay. It's a nonsense song. And I I mean that with like all admiration. The Beatles had a lot of those though, right? They absolutely had okay. a lot of those. And we'll go into that. So The Glass Onion has another, has a lyric, a line in the song, this actual lyric that says, well, here's another clue for you. The walrus was Paul. So researchers have tied this into, first of all, this is a reference to the I Am the Walrus song that they put out, which, which is an allusion to um, Lewis Carroll's and the Walrus and the Carpenters um, poem that's in Alice in Wonderland. Right. Yeah, that's what it's alluding to. Somehow, the urban legend goes that walrus is another word for corpse in another language. And the Inuits had a god of death whose form was a walrus. Is that true? So not really. <laughs> I I will point out right now, I know very little about Inuit lore, but I did some research to try to track down this thing. There is a goddess named Sedna, supposedly. Like, from what I'm able to glean from my research, so um, folklorists who are more familiar with Inuit culture, I could be entirely wrong, Who who's a goddess named Sedna, who is the goddess of um kind of seals and walruses and like sealants all the sea life and she may or may not be depicted with like almost like a a tail but it's not a walrus tail and there's i don't know where the walrus comes in and but she is specifically the goddess of the underworld under realm but not like she's not a walrus there's no walrus her creation story is that her finger, her fingers became all the creatures in the sea. I don't know how they get walrus is a symbol of the death. Mm, yeah. Okay, but um, but also is is it is it a word for corpse? No, the- not that I was able to okay. discover. No, that's that's completely untrue. So okay, so sure, that's there too. The lyric is there. The walrus is Paul. So people are like, oh, 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 and remember that this this rumor came to light in 1969. This was when we started hearing about it. And I'll get to how this got started. But you also have the White Album, which has a, I'm so, the song I'm So Tired, uh, has the, the um, like the another one of the uh, Paul is Dead. Paul, Paul is Dead, man. Miss him, miss him, miss him again. Like, you get that. The White Album also had Revolution 9, the song, which reversed, says, Turn Me On Dead Man. And Turn Me On Dead Man is the one that everybody thinks is the key because they're talking about Paul. Um, it has become like a big thing. And I have not listened to that one in reverse, but I can tell you the Beatles say they didn't put anything in it. And then you get to the coup de Renaissance, the biggest piece in this whole conspiracy, which is the cover of Abbey Road. And you know the yeah. iconic cover of Abbey Road. If you look at that cover, it is, of course, the, the four Beatles walking across the street. And it's a very iconic cover. People have posters of it everywhere. But go, you, go to any college dorm, you'll oh, find yes, one. Yes, you'll find posters. If you look at it, there are some really weird things in the poster. And the one 
is that as they're walking across, Paul is barefoot and his feet are posed opposite all the others. So the theory goes is that the Beatles posed this to show that it is actually a funeral procession where Paul is the corpse. Lennon is, of course, the Christ-like figure of the Holy Spirit. Ringo Starr is the funeral director because he's all in black. And, of course, George Harrison gets to be the gravedigger because reasons. (laughs) (laughs) So people have used all these things to kind of go through it. And you're like, well, where did this come from? Where did we, like, hear these things? Well, it broke out really big in November in 1969. Someone called in to a college radio program and said, I want you to play Revolution 9 backwards because the Beatles have hidden a secret message in it and Paul is dead. And this caller recounts this Paul is dead story to the DJ. And of course, people pick it up. It is crazy. It was such a huge thing in 1969. And at this time, things are kind of going a little crazy for the Beatles. They're not in their best place. Everybody wants to do their own thing. They're not, you know, feeling it. Um, But there are articles written all over the place. Like, all these people are going into it. And of course, like, people are just like, what in the world is happening? Like, is Paul actually dead? And back then, it's a lot harder to track people down to, like, find pictures of them. Because they're also saying there were differences in what Paul looked like. That his eyes were a different color. That he was taller. And that the original, this was something that I heard in some of my research. And not every article or every source quotes it. But supposedly... And this might give you a little subtext on this thing. Supposedly, the original Paul McCartney was gay. But the lookalike is straight. And somehow, that's relevant. I don't know. but bury your gaze. Bury your gaze, right. (laughs) (laughs) They buried, yeah. So, it was a huge deal. And, like, in, so in October, sorry, October, the rumor dropped in 1969. By November... Time Magazine had a cover story featuring pictures of McCartney, his wife, and his child being like, you know, Paul is alive. Look at him right here. And, like, he got him to do this interview to be like, he's clearly alive. Here he is. This is a big rumor. What's going on? So the question kind of is, and, like, Paul later is, like, in Rolling Stone 1974, he basically is quoted as, like, someone from the office rang me up and said, look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, oh, I don't agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) There... It seems like it's a really, like, fascinating story that this kind of traveled on college radios. It was picked up in a lot of college newspapers that people, this whole conspiracy. And there is a lot of other, like, quote-unquote evidence Mm -hmm. that I didn't lay out. These are just some of the biggest ones that you can find and really look for if you're interested in doing any of this. The question becomes, if Paul is alive, did they do it on purpose? Just to kind of create buzz around it? Yeah. Did they do it on purpose? That's the thing with a lot of these, like I, going back to like Love Roller Coaster, mm-hmm. they're like, we, you know, it started, the rumor started, we kept our mouth shut because it sold more records. Mm-hmm. When people were buying the White Album like crazy to see if there was anything in it at the time, people went back in their back catalog, like boosted up sales. Like not that they needed it, but again. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to think about like the medium of music at the time because it was very like vinyl heavy. Mm-hmm. So you were actually able to actively play something backwards. Like, yeah. You can't do that now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, but yeah. not like you did. Like, or you know, in the age of like CDs or tape cassettes, that's not really a thing, you could, a thing you could do. Yeah. Also, I think it like is a testament to the power of radio in both mm-hmm. yours and Love Roller Coaster. Is that like one person just has to say something on air one time, one time, one time, and it spreads like wildfire. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't get that same thing with television, no, because it's a visual medium. Mm-hmm. People like 
for the record, the Beatles, and especially John Lennon, were kind of known fucking with people, especially towards the end. Lennon, in a lot of reports and everything that I've read, seemed really annoyed with people needing to find a deeper meaning in all of the Beatles' work. Like, he, there's a reason that he did the, I've got another clue for you, The Walrus Was Paul, which set people off again. Because people wanted their work to be meaningful. They wanted to be the Uber fan that found all the little clues. And John Lennon is like, knock it off, guys. It's a song. And that's why so many of their songs are either involved in urban legends when you, like, find the right story for it. For example, um, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Everyone thinks it's about LSD. Apparently it was written because his kid brought home a drawing of his friend Lucy from school. <laughs> so that's what he says. That's what he was. He's like, no, it's not about drugs. It's about this weird drawing my little kid did with Lucy in the sky with some diamonds. I think there's a lot of like really fascinating things in there, though, too, because were the Beatles fucking with us? <laughs> did they put more things in there just because they could? Or did this all grow organically? I don't know. I don't, I can't. Six of one, half dozen of the other. That's what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You you know what just dawned on me? What? So there's the Veruca Salt album, Eight Arms to Hold You, which is, I believe, a Beatles reference. Yeah. Um, And in Volcano Girls, there's a lyric about like, um, naming who the Seether is. It's like, here's mm-hmm. another clue, if you please, the Seether's Louise. And I never put the two of those together. Yeah, you're right. I never put that together yeah. either. But yeah, yeah, that, that's the thing though. It's like a lot of people have like built like legends from this. Mm-hmm. There's a great quote, and I think kind of like sums this sort of up in like why we talk about these today. In, um, in his 1978 book, The Beatles Forever, author Peter Doggett wrote this line. And he basically says that like, Paul is dead, dead, which is the conspiracy theory, which is also PID is what it's often like um, shortened to. Why do you need to shorten? I don't know. (laughs) Serves as a quote, a genuine folktale of the mass communications era. Because that's the thing. It's, it's grown. It's built from years. People still believe this. There have been, there was a book written in like 2004 that labeled all the evidence again. See, I've, I've heard that Paul McCartney is dead. Yeah. But the version that I've heard was a more modern, like he died more recently. Oh, interesting. And not okay. back then. And yeah. Then, and then it's a double. It's a double? Yeah. And that the actual double is possibly female. Um, huh. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> but yeah, um, so that's the thing though, is that this is a, a kind of a folktale that has like grown so far. And I love that line. It's like this feels like the first like real folktale from the mass communications era. And yeah, I was looking at, I did a lot of research for this and dug around a whole lot to kind of see where it came from, all this other things. And um, there's a great article on time that covers the origins of it and kind of lays it all out. There's a couple great, I'll send, I'll put some, we'll put some links in the show notes. If you are curious about this to go on some deep dives and some rabbit holes, because some of these forums, there are people on there that are like, how could you not believe this? Why do people keep saying it's not true? That people seem to genuinely believe that this happened. So what do you, now that I have gone through this mass conspiracy, what do you got for me? Well, <laughs> I'm going to take it down. Okay. <laughs> like I like to do. Mm-hmm. I was a teenage F slur. Okay. And so I was obviously a big fan of Billie Holiday. Okay. And one of the songs that she's most known for and how, and I think a lot of it has to do with this urban legend mm-hmm. is Gloomy Sunday. Are you familiar familiar with the song at all? I am not very familiar with the song. I have 
heard that there is some legend about it, but I know very, very little about this one. I, th- I think if you heard the song, you would you would recognize I it. Pro- I um, might. Yeah, it's it's a good song. Mm-hmm. It is kind of more morose and sad, but it is also referred to as the Hungarian suicide song. That is what I've heard. Okay. <laughs> that is the extent of my knowledge. So it, it gets that name because it was originally composed by a Hungarian pianist and composer. Mm-hmm. Going to try this name. <laughs> Don't judge me too much. Uh, Rezo Seris, and it was published in 1933. Okay. The original lyrics were titled Veja uh, Vilyanak, which is the world is ending, is what that means in Hungarian. Okay. And it was about the despair caused by war, um, and it actually ended in a quiet prayer about people's sins. So 1933, and couple years after that as far as whenever this song is starting to gain steam what's going on around the same time in this era in 33 in 33 35 yeah Yeah. you've got the great depression Mm -hmm. and you've also got hitler's rise to power is happening so there were press reports in the 30s that associated like at least 100 suicides with this song just because of how sad it was both in hungary and the united states but like actual being able to link that to the song it's like difficult to verify i mean it's kind of more just like an embellishment of the high number of suicides because of poverty and Mm -hmm. famine and the rise of fascism in hungary like it's uh just kind of one of those like coincidental things Mm -hmm. people did try to capitalize kind of on this though so when the song first reached paris there was a band leader ray ventura started performing it and as they were performing it, he would ham it up with like theatrics. So kind of like very similar to like you think about like what Alice Cooper would do on stage or like Ozzy Osbourne, the kind of mm-hmm. like stunts that they would do. So at the first course of the song, the drummer would get up and shoot himself in the head. Oh. Next, the trumpeter would take a knife and stab himself in the chest. And then a waiter would bring a cup of poison for the sax player. And then they would eventually just leave Ventura on stage until the final verse when a noose would be lowered from above. All right. (laughs) That is pretty gloomy. Yes, yes. So other people have written um, different lyrics to the song. Mm -hmm. So that that original one is not the one that we hear now. So poet Laszlo uh, Yarvov wrote his own lyrics titled... Again, I'm going to try this. I'm trying to expand my horizons with some foreign languages. Sismaro <laughs> um, uh, Vazenrop, Sad Sunday. And in that one, the protagonist wants to commit suicide following his lover's death. It's first recorded as a pop song in 35 by um, Paul Kalmer. And then the first English language one is also in 35, but it didn't become super popular until 1941 with the release of Billie Holiday's version. Okay. There are, like, a lot of this is tied to her particular version, though, even though some of this, like, a, a lot of this preceded it, up to the point of there being, like, bans. Like, there was, the song was so sad and caused people such distress that they would kill themselves that it had to be banned from the radio. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. There actually is only one true ban on this, and it is, it was actually banned by the BBC. Oh, well, that makes sense. Was they, it, it was a radio nasty? they uh, banned it from being broadcast uh, being quote unquote detrimental to wartime morale but they allowed performance of instrumental versions just nothing with like the lyrical content that ban was in place until 2002 oh my god okay (laughs) 
the writer of the song initially had difficulty finding a publisher just because of how melancholy it was. Like one potential publisher stated, quote, it is not that the, it is not that the song is sad. There is a sort of terrible, compelling despair about it. I don't think it would do anyone any good to hear a song like that. Wow. Now you contrast that with how popular it became when Billie Holiday did it. People record this song up until today. Yeah. It's still a super popular song. Here are some other notable people who have done the song. This is a list. All right. <laughs> Which you know how I love. 1958, Mel Torme okay. does a cover of it. 1969, Ray Charles. And these are just, I've picked some mm-hmm. of the more notable yeah. ones. Like if you look at the list of everybody who's done this song, it's massive. 1981, Elvis Costello. 1987, The Dead Milkman. 1987, also Marianne Faithful does a version. 1992, Sinead O'Connor. 1996, Sarah McLaughlin. Okay. And then 1999, Bjork does a cover of it. And then she also went on to perform it live at the funeral of, um, she was close friends with Alexander McQueen, the designer. Okay. And so she performed it at his funeral, which he died by suicide in 2010. So kind of somewhat fitting Mm -hmm. that she picked that song to do it. And just kind of as a, tying it back to the subject matter about 35 years after writing the song the hungarian composer who did it in in 1968 he killed himself oh goodness yeah he had, it, it had to do from what i was able to find it did a lot of it had to do with kind of the legacy of the song and just kind of how that weighed on him mm-hmm. but there would also like he had survived through wartime like that obviously yeah. had, had part of it too it's just <laughs> Well, you, you listen to the song and it is, like I said, it is kind of sad, but it's kind of has a little bit of a hopeful flair at the end of it, just even musically wise. So like, I remember I first heard about this when I was a teenager, when I was first getting into Billie Holiday, it kind of is what drew me to the song. And again, you would recognize it if you heard it. I, I don't understand where this could have stemmed from yeah as far as like the 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 lyrical content being able to drive people to that yeah because like to me that's what i was wondering is like why was it this song that was the one that would would do it except i but although this kind of lends the question of like were the rumors before after the band started playing it as a suicide song yeah, and I, and the lyrics have changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the most recent version I was able to find, actually there was a like a recording of it that came out this year, and there have been changes to the lyrical content over the years. But the the after the original changes, like in 1935, 1941, it's kind of been maintained the same. Mm-hmm. So you think that, you know, the BBC bans it and didn't lift that ban until 2002. Like, it's the same song of from that entire time mm-hmm. and we're not you're not seeing a giant uptick in suicides from people being into billy holiday yeah, yeah that's what i'm saying like <laughs> it doesn't seem like anyone has we don't have any modern reports of it which is why that i love that though when you're like oh this song like it leads you to you know self-harm and then it's like well actually we don't have any reports of that in the last almost 100 years there's but. no like i mean in my head like i remember reading about it and i just imagine people listening to it and then like defenestration all around like people just jumping out of windows because they're so sad about it yeah that seems like it's just a really interesting one i think because that, what do you how do you nail those down to those like musical kind of attributes to that song 
Like, I think that there is the potential for a song and music to kind of cause distress in people and oh, drive them to a particular thing. But sure. I don't think it's this song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, music has a way of dictating your moods. It's the same way that, like, if you listen to angry music, people have a tendency to get more agitated. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to classical music, people kind of, depending on the classical music, I should point out, there's very specific because some classical music is angry. But if you listen to kind of slower music, then you have a tendency to kind of be a little calmer or happier or things like that. Like studies have shown that we are very affected by what we're listening to. And it can, music can heighten our mood, but it never really, it doesn't pull us out of a mood. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It, it's not going to cause you to, like, if you're happy, you listen to something, it's not going to throw you into depression. Right. But if you're already depressed and you listen to something sad, it can definitely amplify it that. It can amplify that. It can amplify anger. Like, the music you listen to can amplify your emotions, but it doesn't cause them. Well, and, and and with this one, the other thing that also kind of doesn't make sense to me in regards to the staying power of this particular urban legend is that... You know, we're talking about a song that originated in Eastern, Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we think of sad songs being in a minor key. Okay. And happy songs, you know, not, you know, not being minor key. But in other countries that are not like Western nations, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's the opposite. Oh. Minor key songs are actually ha- are considered to be happier songs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of um like the, you know, the tradition like some of the more funeral traditions where you have like these big, like bombastic songs and people Mm -hmm. dancing and everything that's sadness. Hmm. Whereas more minor key stuff would be considered more happy. So I know like, you know, Eastern Europe is still, you know, kind of Western world, but I mean, Eastern Europe is Eastern Europe. (laughs) It's kind of its own thing. It's not, it's different. Like it's, it's very different than, you know, it's, it, it is its own thing. Yeah, so even just like if you take the lyrical content out of it and it's just the music, it doesn't it doesn't mesh with me that it would be mm-hmm. just kind of this universally like globally sad thing that would drive people to yeah. suicide because culturally there's going to be differences in what's perceived as sad and what's not perceived as right. sad. The same way that in some cultures black is a color of mourning and in other cultures it's white. Like that's just yeah. how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So again, why this was banned on the BBC until 2002, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I, the BBC makes weird choices with banning things, like as we've seen time and time again, that they have a much higher censor rates than a lot of other countries. So, But it's weird that this specific song that doesn't seem to have any questionable lyrics or questionable um, history. And, and history. one particular version of the song, yeah. too. Oh, just one? Just the Billie Holiday one. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was like all versions of the song. No. Like, like they're not going to play Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of other reasons not to play Bjork. I mean, I love Bjork, but there are plenty of reasons not to play Bjork. But no, it just that one particular version was the only one that mm. was banned. And again, like legends, like rumors that it was banned by other stations, which have not been able to be verified. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything. Other yeah. people have said that they've not been able to find verifiable evidence of that. But it, it's the new, still continues to have staying power in within the urban legend itself. Today I learned a lot about music. <laughs> no, seriously, like I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. I really don't know much. No, it's I, again. It, what's funny is it like I, I kind of fell into it because I was a sad teenage gay. Yeah. And, and so this you, is where it took me. You're gonna yeah. listen to a sad, sad teenage gay music. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything to kind of bring us out of the sad part? <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to bring you out of the sad part, but I do have one more legend. Well, one more type of legend that I think is really important if you're going to talk about urban legends and music. And that is, of course, when you sell your soul. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. The devil went down to Georgia. Devil yeah. went down to Georgia. Yeah. Well, it's the first one that comes it to is, my mind. It does actually come. Yeah. So we hear for thousands of years, we've heard stories of people selling their souls. It's mm-hmm. one of the most popular and endearing myths, legends. You see it. The, the Faustian bargain. All these ideas. And like, of course, who is going to want to make some kind of a bargain more than a struggling artist? Like any artist, you know? So musicians are often the kind of case study in how to sell your soul for a lot of reasons, specifically selling your soul at the crossroads. This, of course, we're going to tell the story about Robert Johnson, the king of the Delta Blues. Now, are you really familiar with like Robert Johnson or his music or anything like that? No. I mean, I am familiar with kind of specifically what's funny is that specifically with like crossroads demons Mm -hmm. you almost always usually seems to deal with like blues and jazz yes yes music of that type and this is kind of one of the most endearing uh, like endearing stories of that like we've we've heard a lot about it you hear it a lot it's a very present in popular culture because robert johnson is widely regarded as one of the best blues musicians ever he inspired bob dylan Dylan has talked about him. Clapton has talked about him. The Stones have talked about him. Zeppelin. So many greats consider him one of the best blues musicians ever. But we don't know him really for his music and popular culture. Like he's not very well known for that. What he is known for is that his his deal with the devil. So here's here's how the story goes. Johnson was born in 1911 in Mississippi. And he was a good kid. You know, we know that. But the only thing he wanted more than anything else in life was to be a great musician, right? He followed older musicians around. He tried to emulate them. He was well known for sort of like maybe like snatching one of their um, instruments and try to learn how to play it, right? Well, according to everyone, Robert Johnson was not a good musician. He was not a great musician. At best, most stories describe him as he was mediocre. Okay. Maybe. Maybe he was worse than mediocre, according to some people. But Well, in the music world, mediocrity is bad. So Yes, yes. But that was until he took his guitar out one night and took a walk down the roads um, with only his guitar for company. And midnight, he made it to the crossroads. And there at the crossroads, he met a very tall black man who borrowed his guitar, played a song or two, and then made him a deal. He would give Robert Johnson... The talent that he always wanted. He would let him play great music. And in exchange, he only wanted one thing. Just his soul, right? And of course, Johnson took the bargain. Now, according to everyone who knows him, he disappeared for about six months. And when he returned, he could play the guitar. He was amazing. He was the best blues musician you'd ever hear. Now, Johnson would go on to record several songs. And these... The titles of many of these songs really kind of lead a lot of like people into believing in the story. For example, Hellhound on My Trail is one of the songs he's best known for, as well as Me and the Blues Devil. So, so this is this is something he leaned into as no, far as no. This is something that people looked at and said, that's really interesting that he these things happen. 
He disappeared for a while. He came back. He's making this music. He must have made a deal with the devil. He must have made a deal with Old Scratch. So additionally, he often seemed to disappear mysteriously, either in the middle of performances or just after a performance. He would have to go very suddenly. And any time he played, he played with his back to the audience. So you couldn't see what his hands were doing. Who was really playing the guitar? Hmm. Was it him? Or was it Old Scratch? We don't really know. So Johnson recorded several songs, but he died pretty mysteriously in 1938 at the age of 27. And as you know, the age of 27 is very <laughs> is the age where all great musicians die, yes. according to legend. 27 Club. 27 Club. And the thing is, no one really knows where he died or where he's actually buried. To this day, there are three gravestones devoted to him. But what is the story here? Who is the real Robert Johnson, and what what deal did he make to be a great blues musician? So I understand that the songs, like he wasn't leaning into that, it just happened to be like, oh, people reading saying that this was proof. So the story overall in, the, in and of itself is not something he leaned into as well. This was just kind of mythos created around him. Everyone who knows Robert Johnson and has been interviewed in the aftermath of this said that Johnson never once claimed the story. And as his friend said, I, there's a great interview with one of the people who knew him, another blues musician who knew the time, said, I would have called him a liar to his face if he had said that to me. <laughs> so people around him never, ever said that he said this. But somehow, the story crops up. Because he did disappear mysteriously for about six months and then come back and could play. So what happened? There's a supernatural episode about this. Is it really? <laughs> yes. Well, that's sad. There's a, I'm, I'm, let's be honest. There's probably mm-hmm. going to be a supernatural episode about everything we talk about. Probably. But. probably. but no, Robert Johnson was a real person. There's not a whole lot known about him. He was born to a family who's actually, and this is kind of, this is one of the most interesting bits is there's, according to a story from NPR that I read, he was born to a woman out of, wedlock because his mother's husband had gotten into an altercation with a white man and had to skip town because of course this is the era where you don't get to do that yeah and so she ended up um because he had to leave he had to leave the state he had to leave everywhere change his name and go and so she couldn't find him it was for everybody's safety so she actually ended up with another man for the rest of her life. It was, you know, ended up with like another one. So he had several siblings from, from his mother's side. Mm-hmm. And um, he, they grew up uh, like living on a plantation, which also, you know, in Mississippi, which is not uncommon for the era. And it's true that he really did want to be a musician. and loved it. It's also true that he did leave for six months. Do you know what he was doing in those six months? Just probably training. Training. Yeah. He was training to be a musician. And he did come back and he did make some really fantastic music, like some blues. He was very, very talented musician, but there's not that much of his music. Cause again, he did die when he was 27. Do you think him having to perform with this back to the audience was just kind of like an anxiety thing? He was very shy. Okay. He, he performed with his back to the audience and people reported that he was very shy. So he actually recorded his um, songs with his back to the audience. And people have said that one of the reasons that they think the acoustics of it resonated more with modern audiences, like in from the sixties and seventies when he actually got really well mm-hmm. known was because of the way that it sounded 
compared to what audiences were accustomed to at the time. Yeah. Because during his life, he was not popular. He didn't really get a lot of acclaim. He didn't get a lot of fame. So if he sold his soul, he didn't really get a great deal out of it. No. He got notoriety, you know. And again, today, many people talk about him and his work as being one of the best blues musicians. But in his lifetime, he did not get any of that. But this story has persisted since the, you know, the the 1930s until now. So is this kind of like, because you hear this mm-hmm. this legend with other musicians yes. and it's like i said before it's almost commonly almost always like blues jazz musicians mm-hmm. so this is kind of more like the proto like the original one well about a decade before robert johnson hit the scene there was another lesser known musician named tommy johnson who was not related to him who was also said to have made a deal with the devil and in this case we found out that it wasn't tommy playing that rumor around it was actually his brother so it might have been something that they were both black men and they both had a similar last name that the story progressed from Tommy, whose brother was spreading the story openly yeah. being like, oh yeah, my brother sold his soul to, for popularity. It was marketing. You well, know? that's the thing. As, yeah, I could, I could mm-hmm. see leaning into it yeah. just as a gimmick. But Robert never did during his life. He never did. He just wanted to make music. And it's true that we don't really know how he died. Like that is a thing. But a lot of people... We don't know how they, you know, there's a lot of people we don't know the specifics of how they died. Yeah, like, I mean, most people. Yeah, <laughs> most, most people, we don't know the specifics because he wasn't very famous yeah. in, in his time. But it's interesting that, like, all of these great musicians tout him as one of their, you know, inspirations. And we still mostly know him for selling his soul to the devil. Well, you say it wasn't a good deal. Right. But, like, I mean, that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. cause that's, you know, those deals with the devil, they're always going to try to get you in a loophole and yeah. it's like, you're going to be famous, but the, the loophole being, you're not going to be famous in your own time. <laughs> right. Right. That is a loophole. You know, you're right there. And I also want to point out one of the things that you, you always said that a lot of these selling their soul to the devil focus around the blues and focus around specifically black made music. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not the only person that has mentioned that because there is a musician and writer who wrote this book called Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. And his name is Elijah Wald. And he points out that it's really kind of only natural that these stories come into play. Because, and he, he says, he like, this was great for marketing. Like, this was great for marketing. But it erases Johnson in the narrative. He's just a guy that sold, you know, we don't know any, like about him, about his life, about, you know, a lot of struggles. And he has this great quote. And it is, quote, like, after all, it's kind of implying that unlike those of us who do the serious work to understand music, these old black blues guys just went and sold their soul to the devil. Oh yeah. They took the easy route. Right. That, yeah. That's, that is the kind of implication with why possibly we see these stories around certain tied specifically to mm-hmm. black made music. Yeah. I had never even considered that. Part yeah. Of I, I really think that like, I haven't read the entire book, but now I'm going to, but I found this quote from the book that I was like, Oh no, that is, I think really telling even, especially then in, in the thirties. In yeah. I wonder why crossroads. Well, crossroads are like, you always talk about your ley lines. Crossroads are a place where two, it's a liminal space, two, a liminal space yeah. where two paths meet. And so, yeah. we all know Wacky yeah. things happen in liminal spaces. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting that this is not, again, 
the first story we know about a musician who sold his soul to the devil. There's one that's much, much older and I think just as interesting for different reasons. Are you very familiar with violin music? I, I mean, yes. Probably you yeah. are. Okay. Do you know, um, have you heard of Nikolai, Niccolo Pagin, Paginini? No. I'm trying to pronounce it correctly. It is Italian. I'm doing my best. So <laughs> L- Nicolo- listen, you heard okay. me muddle through some Hungarian right, right. stuff earlier. <laughs> so Paginini is not really a household name these days unless you are a classical music buff because he is to this day regarded as one of the great virtuosos of the violin. Like this man was a genius, right? He was born in Italy in or Genova and in which city in Italy in 1782. He was playing the mandolin at five. He was composing his own music at seven years old. These are well documented, right? His father realized he had talent for it and started taking him around to these teachers. And the teachers would see this kid, work with him a little bit and be like, oh no, he's better than me. And then pass him up the chain. So he had this like, was working with the great masters. Like he was just a brilliant, brilliant kid, right? He was so popular that like in 1827, Pope Leo Twelfth knighted him in what is called the Order of the Spur, which it's a Catholic thing. It's a Catholic, quote unquote, fake army, right? So he was knighted. He had Catholic knighthood somehow. In 1828, he started a tour around Europe, which he was on this tour until like 1831. And he was playing to sold out shows everywhere. Like this man was just one of the most brilliant, amazing violinists. And he was also called the devil's violinist because his playing style was apparently intense. Now we're talking like he, the man was was able to be able to pull sounds like just crazy sounds from the violin, right? Many people described him instead of playing the violin, he was lashing at the violin with the the strings with his bow. And then he would break one and keep going, keep playing through broken ones. According to what people say, he would make it down to one string and still be playing the violin. Is that possible? Can you do that? No, but what's funny (laughs) is, again, going back to like, you know, the very first thing I said is devil went down to Georgia. Like Mm -hmm. I, I feel like so much, um, symbol, like symbolism of the devil involved with music is around the violin Violin. Um, (laughs) and the fiddle. (laughs) So yes, the, the violin was considered in this era as kind of like the the devil's instrument in a lot of ways. You it could be possessed, quote unquote. There's a lot of imagery surrounding in Europe about the violin being linked to the devil, which is really fascinating too. He was he apparently would compose music that was just almost in, impossible to play for a long time. He would compose music that would work with fewer strings, like he would only use a couple of the strings to do it. He was described as a tall, pale man and often described as cadaverous, and often in poor health. Audiences loved him, right? They loved him, but the stories were all over the place. One audience member just reported seeing the devil himself leaning over his shoulder as he played. Others would swoon or just cry during his performance because they were so taken with him. Like, this is all over the place. Women became hysterical as his, at his very presence. And he was described as this, like, again, very, a lot of movement, a lot of, like, motion on the this the stage he would play it very wildly and his hair would be everywhere and he would just be this big presence people couldn't look away from him people reported being in a trance when he played there's this great quote from a critic of the era that basically goes never in my whole life have i heard an instrument weep like this 
and never knew that music contained such sounds. He spoke, he wept, he sang. There was something demonic about him. Goatee's Mustafa would have played the violin like this. So they're already liking him. Throughout Europe, he was described as like a a magician, a wizard, all of these almost like demonic terms considering the era of all of this stuff. And supposedly he was able to do this because he sold his soul to the devil. So there were all these rumors run, running rampant about how he had to be demonic. He was a demonic creature. And there's a great article that just lists all of the uh, word, the things people called him in this era. There was like charlatan, sorcerer, uh, magician, uh, the Mustafa, Dr. Faust, Mistopheles, demonic, Samael, Satan, Devil spawn, like all over, like, no, this is like a real list of like where this was found in the reviews of his work and all the papers, all these words. And like, that's the thing that was like, no one knows, like he never reported that he sold his soul once again, but these reports followed him everywhere. But he had talent from a very early age. Oh yeah. He was brilliant. And he still is to this day considered one of the most amazing, you know, composers and violin. Yeah, I don't see where a deal would have happened then. That well, I found some references that said his mother was the one who sold his soul for him okay. when he was a kid, when he was like six. I saw other ones that said that he was able to do it at such a young age because he met the devil when he was a young child and the devil gave him this ability. There's also a question of was he possessed by the devil? While he was playing. Yes. Or mm-hmm. was he given, you know, given this talent by the devil? So you see a lot of different, it's a really fascinating story that kind of like bridges the the gap from there. And, and here's the thing that I think ties some of this together that they talk about women swooning and becoming hysterical. And they also go to great lengths to talk about how unattractive this guy is. Oh, they were jealous. Yeah. Because (laughs) this guy, I, I think, was he the first true rock star? Because think about it. Sold out shows, women sitting in the front row fanning themselves over people him. People being entranced by people it. People being yeah. entranced by him. People saying that his, his talent was too much to be real. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, I, I can just imagine these, these women just like fanning themselves and like throwing themselves at him like all over. And he, he had a reputation for the ladies too. He actually had a longtime partner that uh, she and he performed together a lot through Italy and they had a child together. But yeah, apparently he had a bit of a reputation for many lovers in many cities all over the place. He really does sound like like, like a rock star. Proto, yeah. proto rock star. <laughs> and it, some of these things may have just been, and I don't know this because, you know, the images I've seen of him have all been like sketched out like car- um, caricatures, you know, where he looks all spindly and like kind of moving on the stage. Like the way that you would depict the devil with the, like, with the fiddle, you know. But I think that's really interesting that you have these sort of things. And he did, he died fairly young, not super young, but he died younger. And people actually think now because he was so sick that he may have actually had like cholera or like the Ehlers-Dallos, I can't remember the name of the disease, that's a degenerative mm-hmm. condition that will eventually, like it's it's chronic illness, it disables you. But I can't pronounce anything, um, but it's like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Okay. Yeah. People think today maybe he might have had that too which also could have led to his appearance in the way that he moved. His hands were quite large, apparently, big enough to span a certain amount of strings or supposedly with, with his hands. He could do more with it. like so. But yeah, like it's interesting that you find these people, these deals with the devil being spoken about for people who were just incredibly talented 
by possibly people that were maybe a little bit jealous. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way. There's right. no way. So those are my two like favorite stories of like selling your soul. And I didn't know about Robert Johnson much until, because of course you've, you've seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? With the George Clooney. I'm aware. I've never seen You've it. never seen that movie? No. It's a great movie. Tommy, I think he's Tommy in that movie, but it's supposed to be Robert Johnson is the, the character who finds the soggy bottom boys and he's like, no, sir, I just sold my soul to the devil. And like the, literally his like thing. And, he's, and you're like, oh, that's great. Cause it's based off the truth, you know, based off the true story. But, uh, and there's also a great, in popular culture, there's a fantastic novel about a modern selling your soul to the devil called We Sold Our Souls from Grady, uh, Grady Hendrix, who's one of my favorite horror authors. Oh yeah. Yeah. He does a, a really good, he's a really good novel about a, <laughs> a, a a metal band who sells their souls and how one member is not too thrilled about it. Well, I mean, we're, we're led to believe like going back to like your back masking and mm-hmm. everything that all of those bands have sold their souls to the devil. Right. Yeah. That is, that is the thing with it. So it, I think it's, it, that is one of my like favorite kind of backstories is like the sell your soul to the devil. That's how you get the devil went down to Georgia. You mm-hmm. see it all over now, but uh, nothing like that for modern people. Not as much. If you could, if you could sell your soul to the devil for musical talent, what, what kind of musical talent would it be for? Oh God, any, I have none. I can't do anything. Like, is there a particular instrument you'd want to be, be just oh, kind of like magnificent ooh. at? Let's see. Everyone always wants to play the guitar. I feel like that would be fun, but I don't know. See, mine would be the violin. The violin would, I mean, but the violin's so cool. Like, how yeah. do you not want to play the violin, right? The, the, that's why it's the demonic instrument. That's it's why it's too the, cool. Because that's the thing is like, again, yeah, like you have all of this like tying of like the devil with the violin and like I, yeah. immediately I'm like, I'd want to play the violin. Nobody sells their soul for the tuba. like Or the theremin. <laughs> the ther- yeah. I mean, the theremin is the devil's instrument. Let's yeah, be honest. It like be. it's the spookiest instrument. Right, yeah. right. But you don't, like tuba players, like none of the, like the, the clarinet, players are going to be selling their soul. They don't do that. Flute, I can believe. Flute, maybe. Yeah, I can yeah, see okay, selling okay. your soul for a flute, but the two, <laughs> clarinet. Tubas, clarinet and tubas are not sexy enough to sell your soul. Saxophone, for. yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Drums? Hmm, no. No? No. 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 Piano, yes. I mean, yes, piano, yeah. What do you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we've got another rabbit hole. Um... I'm trying to think of like the instrument that would be like the most ridiculous one to sell your uh, um, pan flute. <laughs> pan flute. Or what is it? The um, the mouth harp. A mouth harp. Yeah, that, that's it right there. Sell your soul for the mouth harp. Go on. Have fun with that. The, the, the twanginess of that instrument, though, does kind of lend itself it to a, making a deal with the devil. <laughs> pretty delightful sound that it makes for all its ridiculousness. But uh, I don't know that you can become famous for playing a mouth harp. No. Not by itself. You have to at least do something else. There has to be a gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of gimmick. The gimmick could be that you sold your soul for the uh, mouth harp sure. talent. Yeah. Just market yourself as selling your soul. All right. You bring us back on track. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I derailed us. See, there's a, like all the legends that we talk about are still things that people talk about today. Like there's still this kind of concept of underlying that it exists, if not real, you know, if people don't believe it, which people believe a lot of these. They're still in popular culture. Like, they keep showing up. We see it in No Brother, Where Art Thou? We see Josie and the Pussycats. Like, you you kind of see urban legends make, the movie Urban Legend make reference to a roller coaster of love. And, and for example, the songs having 
power over you is something you see. There's a great video game, Song of Horror, that has that sort of like concept in it about things, songs that make you crazy, songs that affect you like that. Like these myths and these stories persist over time. Yeah, it, it, and just kind of the connective thread of all of them, like, you know, like hiding hiding things in music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe a lot of it, as far as like the power of music over us is just because like music is very powerful. Like it, it does have such a, like it, it can elicit a response in you and emotional. And like, we always want to have so much control mm-hmm. as, as people. And so like we have to kind of attribute things to some otherworldly power because we can't just be in our feelings. Well, <laughs> no, you make a really great point though, is that there's this sort of idea in a lot of cultures, like modern cultures, where feeling too much is bad. So if you feel so much, there must be a reason it's not just you, it's an outside stimulus. So there must be something in the music and it has to have some sort of nefarious purpose. Because, I mean, a lot of that's tied to like masculinity and things like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't cry at a song, you know, how would, how dare you like cry over this? Like what, what is this? So when something makes you feel too much, you may feel like it's it it's the devil or, you know, why are my children not listening to me? The devil is in this music. They yeah. listened They listened to Led Zeppelin three times. I'm sorry, now Satan owns them. Three times. Three, three times. times, yeah. Yeah, I think also just kind of at our core, like as people, we, we like kind of more spooky and macabre stuff. So like anything that kind of is like tied to like death and everything we, mm-hmm. we are big fans of. And at our core, we like to be sad. <laughs> we, it's true. Yeah, people, people like to, to feel sad or like, at least people want to feel safe enough to let out their sadness. Yeah. You know, um, sadness is an emotion that I think a lot of people don't let themselves feel until it's like safe for them to do so. And music has a tendency to make you feel a lot of things, even when you're maybe not prepared for them. Yeah. Music is just otherworldly mm-hmm. on its own. Yeah. You don't have to attribute some nefarious thing to it. Like it's, <laughs> it's already very, yeah. 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 Not to get like, no, <laughs> I mean, people, people want to find meaning in a lot of things too, which is why you have this half of the Paul is dead theory is just people trying to find meaning in Lennon's lyrics when he's writing, you know, I am the walrus. I am the Eggman, cuckoo, cuckoo guys. This is not deep. No, no. <laughs> like I, I, I think that that's kind of lends itself to, you know, you're saying like, did they do this on purpose? I, I, it wouldn't shock me because mm-hmm. I think that at that point they were just kind of like, they wanted to fuck with people, yeah. you know, they were at that point. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because you, well, you especially see it, I think, a lot with, like, Lennon at that time because, like, Paul wanted to make his music. And whether or not you consider his solo music good or not or any of their solo music good or not, but they did want to create things. And they – but that wasn't it. And they were so constricted by their label at the time, too, because they wanted a boy band. And what they got was Maxwell's Hammer, which if you've ever listened to the song, do you know that song? Mm-mm. What's the song about murder? <laughs> And, you know, that's the thing is so many people found so many different things out of the Beatles music that either wasn't there or wasn't intended that, like, we want to find meaning in things. We we want to feel things. And if music makes us feel something, we want to feel like we know why. 
Yeah, and patterns. We want to find pattern. Mm-hmm. I feel like every one of our episodes ends with <laughs> we want to find meaning and stuff. I mean, but we do. And <laughs> and, and again, like horror is a great vehicle for yeah, that. Anything yeah. horror related is a great vehicle for trying to derive meaning about things. But music as well. Like mm-hmm. anything musically related, we want to derive meaning right. from. And we don't really think about it on a, like a daily level. It's like, why do we care so much about this? You know, why is this a thing? We, we do... Well, we want our lives to be meaningful. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that's why people want to create things. And that's why people want to be in the special club that knows all the secrets about stuff. And that's why people would sell their souls to have a meaningful life. Well, that just tied it all up with a nice little bow there, didn't it? <laughs> I think that there's so much more. I, I, I feel like this is something we will probably revisit again in the future because like you touched we touched like briefly mentioned like 27 club oh yeah and there's so many other urban legends that mm-hmm. are like tied to music not necessarily like songs but just no, kind of just like music. rock rock music yeah. especially picking just a few for this was very difficult i will say well that's the great thing about having a podcast is we can do as many Go episodes on this as we yeah. want <laughs> yeah there are so many legends out there that are so much fun to research, I would love to hear um, some of your favorite legends around music too. Yeah, throw some out at us. Mm-hmm. I, I would, would love to research something that I, I know absolutely yeah. nothing about. I mean, <laughs> that's the strangest thing to say. <laughs> I mean, is it the strangest thing that you've ever said though? Absolutely yeah. not. No, no. <laughs> there, that's it's way down on the list. Well, as always, we would like for you to you know, email us with, um, ideas, suggestions, not just music related, but if you have anything else that you would like us to talk about, then definitely let us know those things. Yeah. We'll probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a giant list of our own. Please give me a rabbit hole to go down. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> give us a hyper focus mm-hmm. for a little while, please. And thank you. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I know that, you know, we are just coming back. We are new for this season, but mm-hmm. if you've enjoyed previous episodes and you are enjoying these first two of this season, rate and review us. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's really dumb to say, but it really does help. Yes. Especially on Apple podcasts. Apparently mm-hmm. that's the one that matters the most. It. Yeah, I know. Thanks, I hate it. But, you know, you, you got to say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add in closing? No. Um, listen to more music. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially coming from me. Yeah, yeah. If we were just, if this was just a music podcast, I would be able to talk. Just oh, for sure. Ad in, was ad infinitum or whatever. I'm trying to be fancy with my words. I'd be able to talk about it forever. Forever. All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Culture Cryptids is recorded, produced, and engineered by me, JD. And me, Corey. You can find us on social media at Culture Cryptids on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Questions, comments, corrections, hate mail? Email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.